2: good morning this is bennett kelly and welcome to another edition of cyber law and business report and it's good to be back um we are once again teaming up with the illustrative miami book fair and we have with them one of their authors um a man by the name of patrick mcgilligan who has a book with harper collins called funny man mel brooks and um so um, Patrick is the author of um, Alfred Hitchcock, A Life in the Darkness and Light, Fritz Lang, Nature of the Beast, George Cukor: A Double Life, and books on the lives of directors Nicholas Ray, Robert Altman, Oscar Michaud, and James Cagney, Jack Nicholson, and did I also mention Clint Eastwood? Um, he's also edited an acclaimed five-volume back series of interviews with Hollywood screenwriters and Paul Buell, The Definitive Tender Comrades, A Backstory of the Hollywood Blacklist. And he lives in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where he's calling in from today. Thank you for joining us, Patrick.
3: Thank you for inviting me.
2: I wanted to start off by saying so about this book about Mel Gibson, but uh, I gave it away with the lead. So we are talking about <laughs> Mel. Uh, we are talking about uh, Mel Mel Brooks, and um, who it just you know, it's astonishing that you have one man. You know, he he has the EGOT, um, which is the Emmy, Grammy, uh, Oscar, and Tony uh, awards, which you know a number of people have had. But he also has three of the American Film Institute's 100th funniest American movies of all time, Blazing Saddles number six, The Producers number eleven, and Young Frankenstein number 13. So I mean, it's quite um, He's quite an esteemed um, comedic director. Um, but even with that, um, I, I, I have to start by asking a kind of a question. What is, I mean, I, I'm, I'm familiar with Brooks and obviously you know, his movies were um, part of my you know, growing up, um, but wh- what is Mel Brooks today? Do people know Mel Brooks?
3: Well, it may be generational in the sense that uh, older people know Mel Brooks really well. Uh, and younger people, when I show something like Blazing Saddles to my film class, I teach at Marquette University here and have for about 20 years. A lot of people are seeing it uh, for the, you know, fourth time, um, having watched it with their parents, and a lot of people are seeing it for the first time. And you know, if you ask them afterwards and give them a little quiz, uh, who is, uh, um, what German singer is being spoofed in the film? What do, what does one flavor of uh, howard johnson's ice cream make a joke about right. they're not they're not getting um they're getting very very few of those uh references and yet uh they really like the spirit of the movie and they're laughing 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 um throughout the entire movie so there's a lot um, of mel brooks that probably is generational even as comedy and he took his comedy largely uh, as i uh, bring out in the book, you know, from his own boyhood and from the 30s and 40s and people that he adored and then later went back and in various ways pirated and and reshaped and turned into his own. Um, you know, that kind of uh, vaudeville comedy and shtick comedy, that itself may have gone by the boards. You know, I say in the book that, you know, his his greatest sin at a certain point was was having farts be funny and blazing saddles and then later on you get some dumb, dumb and dumber come along and, and or, or bridesmaids and you know people are doing amazing things in the toilet which are quite funny um, so they, he got kind of one up by the new generation and he was pretty pretty clean comedian really I mean there's not there's not uh, graphic sex um, or love scenes in his movies at all they're really you know straight out of 30s and 40s comedies in some way And there certainly isn't very much uh, what you would call Frank um, or vulgar language. So uh, he's a, you know, for, for younger people, I think he's a sophisticated taste to be honest, but, but um, for uh, older people, he's a brand name.
2: Right. Yeah. No, we all, yeah. I grew up with it and uh, I've, I've seen most of his movies and uh, as a kid and, yeah, Mel Brooks is is that you looked up to, and you, you know you associate with a certain type of comedy. Um, I, I do have, a, although it's funny you mentioned the you know, the fart jokes, is that you know he actually once complained to Carl Reiner about watching something about oh I can't believe they're doing that, and Carl Reiner kind of shot back at him and says Mel, you're the one who started this.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, like I say, he's a relatively, you know, I would call clean comedian. We know who are the comedians who stand up and, well, you know, starting with people like Lenny Bruce and George Carlin, uh, you know, who who made a point of being um, very frank. Um, He's not that way. And uh, I think he, you know, he really opened the gate um, in a lot of ways. Of course, the culture opened the gate, and then he was there also. True. Uh, And probably – you know, probably he's proud of that because he's a funny man. So he probably thinks those films are funny. But he, you know, I talk about in the book how an airplane comes along, and you know, God knows the Zucker brothers are fairly clean, also. Uh, but they're they're probably more risque. Let's put it that way. Right. And uh, you know, he's kind of he's kind of grumbling, you know, um, at the new generation at times. They, of course, all adore him
2: and recognize right. the, the, and recognize
3: them as a you know. Yeah as a father figure of of their kind of comedy. So eventually, as time goes on and he becomes almost sainted, you know, in the American culture, uh, he embraces almost um, all comedy. And so that is sort of like a grumpy remark that he makes to Carl Reiner when they're watching Saturday Night Live one night. Um, And, but he's capable of being grumpy.
2: Yes, and uh, we all, but I do have, when you... With the idea of doing this book, um, I, I guess was, was what, what was driving it was kind of, you know, he was a, a director that you just were, were drawn to as, because you liked his comedy?
3: No. Um, the, the honest answer is always the contract, you know, that there's a negotiation and a mediation and a long discussion about who you should do next um, or who might you write about now. And uh, he wasn't first on my list, and I'm not even sure he was in the top five, but he was on the list, um, and the list kind of got whittled down. And I had never written about, you know, a contemporary comedian, because he's certainly contemporary with you and me. And uh, uh, I knew he had a great career. I had been on the set of History of the World I'd, when I lived in Hollywood, you saw him all the time, you know, dining out and waving to people. And, and so uh, I knew he would be a really great subject. And also he was a great subject that hadn't been written about uh, in depth, um, very extensively, uh, very um, well um, in terms of his entire career before. So that was, that was very attractive. And I do, you know, there are a couple of his films I adore. Um, and so I wasn't approaching it as a good, you know, he's a great filmmaker uh, so it's a little bit different than writing about Orson Welles or Alfred Hitchcock. And, and the difference was fun for me. I mean, in other words, that was part of the challenge and part of the intrigue. The publisher was very, you know, they were they were they took their time to come around to the idea of Mel Brooks. He was always on the list as a very, very uh, dynamic, interesting character. And um, they were partly put off or worried that because he had made noises over the years about writing his own autobiography and they hoped to publish it. And I always said, you know, when they brought that up as an objection, well, let him write his own autobiography, all the better for me, you know, then I can, you know, that's one stop shopping for his point of view about.
2: Right. Me. Right. Yeah. That's it. That's, that's mining gold.
3: Yeah. And of course he, he really never did. He's done, you know, 10,001 interviews where he's told anecdotes and often the same anecdotes. So uh, that's the kind of book I think it would have been. Um, But I didn't, that that didn't bother me. I do something different. I mean, if if a person's autobiography is sacred, they should be allowed to say anything they want. Um, They should be allowed to (laughs) disremember, lie, (laughs) build themselves up, however they want to tell their life story. I believe that's a constitutional right of someone to write their own autobiography any way they care to. Uh, badly written. Go ahead. Um, but a biographer or, has a different obligation. Right.
2: I was just going to mention you were talking about autobiographies and you know, their right to write it as they choose. And I was just going to add or and, and also claim that they were misquoted in, as Charles Barkley once did. But... Um, <laughs>
3: Yeah, I mean, and that's, of course, you know, one of the things, one of the hardest things for a biographer really is to read those 10,001 interviews and decide uh, if someone has been misquoted or where they correlate um, or where they are the same uh, and to determine what you believe to be truthful and factual. So because people can be misquoted, Um, we're on tape, so I can't be misquoted, but people can say things that they didn't mean to say as, as you well know. So um, I I take that very seriously. So I try to represent someone truthfully and I don't believe, and I I mean this very um, sympathetically that everyone is truthful in their autobiographies. They're just not.
2: True. So um, one reason I was asking the question was you, you you wrote a biography of Clint Eastwood that ended in, had some litigation as a result. And given um, Mel Brooks's litigiousness, was that at all a factor in the decision of what, you know, do I do this or not?
3: Well, to be honest, ever since I was sued by Clint Eastwood, everything I do is looked at very closely. And um, litigiousness on the part of someone in Hollywood who is alive uh, is almost a given, although it's not always the case, but it's often the case. So uh, we tried to be as truthful, as factual, as fair, um, as balanced as possible, considering the content sometimes of what's in his life story, and to take into account that, yes, in the book, for example, there are some very interesting <laughs> and significant court cases that he was involved in. I would not define him as litigious, you know, for the fun of it, um, or even litigious about um, his his image or persona per se. He, he's he's definitely litigious about his credit and his um, uh, m- money and where money is concerned. Right. And uh, uh, the book makes that very clear. And so I don't I don't um, I don't we don't think we did anything that was litigious, but. But lawyers are very careful with me. I was doing my Alfred Hitchcock book when I was being sued by Clint Eastwood, and the lawyers spent hours and hours on the phone with me. The first thing they always want to know is, is somebody dead? You know, because if someone's dead, <laughs> then, they, then they can relax. So, uh, you know, I, I'm constantly proving that someone is dead by, you know, supplying an obituary. Uh, but, but when someone's alive, when you're writing about a live person, of course, all the stakes go up um, for uh, for concern um, that you were you might be sued. You know, when I turned in my Clint Eastwood book uh, in, in a draft form, you know, the editor said, you know, do you think we might be sued? I said, have you read the book? <laughs> you know, first of all, he sues everybody at the drop of a hat. You know, um, he, he is litigious. And, you know, secondly, there was a lot of material in the book that he might sue over. So nobody published that book um, in a carefree manner. Everyone was very, very careful about facts and truth and realized we might be sued anyway.
2: Right. Well, you're feeling lucky, kid. Um, so <laughs> so with this, have, has Mel Brooks responded at all to the book?
3: No. No. Um, I mean, people don't necessarily respond to books. You'd be surprised. You know, I wrote a book about Jack Nicholson, uh, who doesn't sue, isn't litigious, uh, doesn't read what's written about him. But I used to work at the Boston Globe. So somebody who was at the Boston Globe brought it up to him in an interview and asked, you know, has he read this book by McGilligan? And uh, uh, Nicholson said uh, something like, no, I wouldn't read it because it makes me feel like I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? I find, I find him to be the, uh, the high mark of sophistication in Hollywood where publicity and worrying about what somebody writes about you is concerned. I, Robert Altman, I wrote a book about Robert Altman, and he told Rolling Stone in print that I must have been drunk when I wrote it.
2: That could be a compliment in some cases, but yeah,
3: yeah. I, I, knowing knowing Bob, uh, who is one of America's greatest filmmakers of our time, uh, without question, and who I adore, and who is a very difficult person, it was a great compliment. <laughs> but he didn't sue.
2: That's all that matters. Yeah. Um, so um, it's funny you mentioned Jack Nicholson. I remember I was um, my wife knew a woman who was a. Yeah, you familiar with the seat fillers at award shows? Yeah. Uh, so when this, for those who aren't listen, for those listen who aren't, in at the at the the various award shows, if someone goes to the bathroom um, during a commercial break and doesn't return in time for the show when the show resumes, they have someone who's dressed up and um, sits in that seat wherever that may be. Well, yeah, it's funny. The, I've
3: been to the Oscars. It took me a moment to click on to what you were saying, but yeah.
2: Yeah. I actually did it once um, before a minor show, and uh, but this the seat filler got the seat next to Jack Nicholson at the Oscars, and unfortunately, or or actually maybe not, it was the immemorium section, and uh, they said he's and and this person relayed how, you know, Nicholson was in tears during part of it since these were his friends and contemporaries. And then um, also at the very same time, a true Irishman and was just trying to tell her stories about all these people. And uh, it was just an amazing experience for her. But um, any event.
3: Yeah, I mean, when I was doing that book, for example, people would call me up, friends of his would call me up and say, hey, I have Jack's tickets to the Lakers today. I'd be out in L.A. doing my work. And would you like to come and sit in the seat next to me? Because he's going to say, who's that guy? And I'm going to say, it's your biographer, Jack, you know, just to just to nettle him, you know, (laughs) whereas the opposite occurred in Mel's case, because, um, you know, one of the one of the things about Mel. And I mean, this should be no surprise if you love his movies and love his persona is that, you know, when he's mad um, or upset or even when he's just like in a mood and Jack can be this way, too. He will scream in your face. And um, so there were people who didn't speak to me or took a long time thinking about talking to me, not because they were afraid of being sued for saying something untruthful or not factual, or even um, uncomplimentary un, un, un about mm-hmm. Mel. They were afraid Mel was going to scream at them, you know, when when they, when he found out uh, or when he found out what they said. Same thing in the book, because, uh, you know, he would even scream in script conferences, you know, the, writer of Robin Hood, uh, you know, is said to have feared that he was going to drop dead of a heart attack. He was screaming so, you know, oh. loudly um, at one point. So um, he he um, controls people uh, uh, in a different way than just by being litigious. He controls by being the boss and being the, the loudest voice in the room.
2: She was, yes. Now, it would, in, in approaching this from you know, from my perspective, since so much of you know, before this book, so much of what I knew about Brooks was just what I observed and and had seen of my own, um, I, I was not that familiar with his TV work, and so I, which is kind of a, a good place to start, kind of diving in. And um, you know, he got his break, you know, first you know doing the the Catskill circuit, but He got his break in TV um, working for Sid Caesar as a writer in the 50s, right?
3: Yeah, he bonded with Sid Caesar in the Catskills and then later on reconnected with him. And at that point, Sid Caesar was a nobody playing uh, his musical instrument in a band. Uh, But then after World War II, Sid Sid Caesar took off like a rocket and he was appearing in New York. And Mel went there and they they bonded, um, you know, in the beginning, Mel was really kind of his tag along and run for coffee and laugh at all my jokes, kind of uh, Gabby Hayes, you know, like a mm-hmm. comedic Gabby Hayes guy. But Sid Caesar was undoubtedly the first person to notice that Mel Brooks was really, really funny um, and that he was he, – he he could write. Uh, and the writing for Sid Caesar uh, – just as he begins in his uh, television career, first with a show called The Admiral Review, um, he, you know, he, he Sid would be upset not having a good closer to the joke or a real capper or like something really funny to say at this moment. And he'd right. leave the meetings really angrily and Mel would be waiting outside in the corridor and Sib's a big, tall, strong guy, you know, taking big strides, kvetching about this sketch, it doesn't work. And, you know, Mel is are pitching him ideas, you know, and that's how Mel got into the writer's room of your show of shows, which is a famous, famous writer's room. Um, initially, just two writers uh, who are uh, personages in the book. And then, you know, he works his way up to becoming kind of indispensable to Sid, as Sid's, uh, you know, alter ego, and a guy that Sid really likes and gets along with, and doesn't mind traveling with, and thinks is really, really funny all the time, except when he doesn't, and then they argue.
2: <laughs> when he hangs him out the window of a, a hotel.
3: Yeah, um, early on in their up. relationship, it was much more lopsided, and you know, there's some people that think that uh, Mel played the jester, you know, a little bit too long, um, and that it enabled some of Sid's uh bad behavior and uh when he was working because uh, he was famous for his tantrums and his rages and his egos um and yes at one point very very early in the relationship he you know mel was in chicago with him complaining that uh you know he wanted to go out it's after the show let's go out let's so let's go see the let's go see what's on the streets let's go to the nightclubs and sid caesar was a guy who like after work after doing his show he just wanted to like drink and sink into quiet and you know he kind of became invisible after work and uh he you know he finally got tired of mel complaining and grabbed him and opened the window and hung him out from whether it's the ninth floor or the 14th floor or the fourth floor of a chicago hotel dangling him by his feet are you out far enough yet <laughs> you know mel says I, yeah i okay you know and so it's a, it's a famous anecdote. Um, and uh, Sid's brother, who always traveled with him, was in the room saying, Sid, Sid let him back in. But you know what? Um, it, it made for a funny anecdote. And that was part of their bond is that Sid could do things and Mel thought they were really funny.
2: Well, imagine doing that in the workplace today. But <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 you understate some um, part of the, the show of shows in the, in the writer's room. I mean, the other writers are are legion: Carl Reiner, yeah, um, yeah. Neil Simon, um,
3: and, yeah, and his brother Danny and Danny
2: Mel Tolkien, and Larry um, Galbart,
3: Lucille Callan, who was part of the original two with Mel Tolkien. They really created your show. Shows the well, the producer did too, and so did Sid Caesar, but they created the format. Yeah, and then later on Woody Allen, and you know I. I say in the book that someone, when they reunited all the writers, those writers uh, at the Writers Guild for a, for a panel and an audience, you know, in, in the 90s, said this is, you know, made the wisecrack that this is the greatest writers ever assembled in one room since Shakespeare wrote alone, you know, <laughs> and uh, they were pretty famous, uh, a, a famous group. I make, I make the crack in the book that they rarely were all in the room at the same time. Um, and Woody Allen did not appear at that panel and audience. He only worked much later for Sid on specials uh, in the late 1950s, uh, largely with Larry Gelbart. Um, so they worked at different shifts. You know, they, they actually felt, and I tell this story of the book, they felt underappreciated at the time, and um, other television shows were winning Emmys for Best Writing, and there's a point at which um, the Sid Caesar show, which is the follow-up to your show of shows is nominated for an Emmy for best writing and all the writers go to the annual banquet in New York and they're just desperate finally to win an Emmy because they've never won it's always Sergeant Bilko or some other series that's winning and they announce the award and and it does go to like Sergeant Bilko or another series all of whom had sterling groups of writers you know some of whom had gone through the Said Caesar Mill and you know Mel supposedly jumps on the table and screams there is no God <laughs> <laughs> which is a good story even if it's apocryphal uh, because they were um, you know at the time they were not as famous as they became later on and at the time they were celebrated but not as celebrated as some other TV series
2: I knew it today and the, the, other, the other thing that I, I wasn't aware of is uh, how that writer's group was um, portrayed in in, in other mediums. So I was not aware that Mel Brooks's character was the inspiration for Maury Amsterdam and the Dick Van Dyke show, for example. Um, Yeah, there are
3: three three great um, examples. I mean, they've kind of been borrowed from and and, uh, depicted in various ways in other works, but there's the Dick Van Dyke show, Uh, which was done by Carl Reiner, who was the uh, second banana on your show shows after the first like year and a half and rose rose to stature on that show first as a performer, but then he started joining the writers and Carl Reiner is an amazing writer um, with as amazing a writing career as Mel Brooks or anyone else we're discussing. Uh, He created the Dick Van Dyke show and, and uh, 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 Rose Marie is, supposedly a sort of a, 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 a parody of Selma Diamond, who was a later uh, writer for Caesar and Maury Amsterdam is kind of the Mel Brooks. Um, but I mean, the great thing about that show is that he's not Mel Brooks and she's not Selma Diamond. All those people right. are so ind- individual, show so well done. Then later on Mel comes along and he does my favorite year with Peter O'Toole as a flamboyant kind of fading Errol Flynn kind of figure who, who who appears on a year show of shows kind of show. Um, And um, it's a fantastic film and critics really, really love it. It was Richard director, Richard Benjamin's first uh, actor, Richard Benjamin's first film as a director produced by Mel and his company and written by one of the blazing saddles um, screenwriters who never gets enough credit, Norman Steinberg. And, 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 by Mel, who didn't take credit, um, which is not not really the story of his career, normally speaking, um, who worked very, very closely on the script to make it as close as possible to, let us say, the emotional truth of, of that story. And then later on, Neil Simon comes along and does laughter on the 23rd floor, which I think is really uh, underrated, terrific, terrific, uh, uh, funny and very accurate and, uh depiction of the writer's room uh, and it's more about the writers that 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 uh film is uh, that play is more about the writers um whereas the other two uh dick van dyke show is about dick van dyke and uh uh the my favorite year is about a lot of things including the peter o'toole character who has really nothing to do with your show of shows uh, or the Sid Caesar show except that they had famous stars come and do you know a show or two
2: right now speaking of credit um we have to give credit to our sponsors so we're going to take a short break when we come back we'll have more on funny man mel brooks with patrick mcgilligan after these messages you're listening to cyber law and business report only on Webmaster webmasterradio.fm
1: stay tuned for more of the cyber law and business report after this brief recess for our sponsors
5: this is WebmasterRadio.fm. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're everywhere.
6: Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? authority on search
1: vendors. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report only on WebmasterRadio.fm
2: And we're back and we're talking with Patrick McGilligan. He is the author of Funny Man, Mel Brooks, and uh, we talked about his background at the start of the show, but the important thing we didn't mention was that he will be appearing at the Miami Book Fair on November 23rd um, as part of a panel, Hollywood Lines Real and Imagined. And I also didn't mention that he actually had been, uh, made an appearance in Game of Thrones. Is that true?
3: (laughs) Yes, it is. You've done very good research. Well, I was teaching at uh, Queens University in Belfast on a Fulbright, I was teaching, nonfiction life writing and screenwriting to students. And I, my time ran out. I was done with all my chores. And uh, I was teaching a student who wanted to write a script that she would star in and direct herself. So as a kind of pleasant joke or a, a nice, n- nicely intended joke, I said, well, what are you doing for your day job? And she said, well, she does a lot of extra work. And I said, for what kinds of shows? And you know, she mentioned Game of Thrones. And <laughs> I'm the only person in my family who hasn't read or seen a single minute of Game of Thrones. And so I knew it would really, really anger everybody if I somehow got on this show. So I went through all the rigmarole of, you know, getting, you know, getting the my measurements, my neck measurements, and my health approved. And yeah, I, I spent a day on. Uh, Game of Thrones got paid really well. You eat really, really well. Um, And it's a very interesting... I knew it would be interesting to spend a day with the extras, and the extras were great. Uh, And I made lasting friendships, and some of them had, you know, did this really for a livelihood, and they had been on a lot of Game of Thrones shoots. And uh, they told me the whole story of Game of Thrones, you know, pointing out the stars who I had no idea who they were, uh, explaining where the scene was going to... We had to sign secrecy uh, agreements, so I couldn't write about it, which I did for the Los Angeles Times until really, I think, the week after the episode was over with. And I'm only can be seen very briefly. (laughs) (laughs) But but it was a wonderful wonderful gig. And everything about it was great, except it was really, really hard work. And it was very arduous because, you know, your call was four in the morning. You worked till six. Six um, and if you worked past six, you got overtime. So they were really, really eager to get you done at six. I was there on the day where they had set a record for number of extras, like something like six hundred. Wow! I forget. When you say
2: six, are you saying a.m. or p.m.?
3: You start at four a.m. and then you work till six p.m. and you're on your feet most of that time wow. in, in, you know, bad sandals, costume sandals, you know, um, in out in the sun uh, doing. Doing, I'm sorry to say, take after take, slower, faster, spread out, bunch together, scream, don't scream, this of the same scene over and over again. So there's a there's a tedium factor too. And young people, because when I initially applied, I thought to myself, well, how many guys in their 60s could possibly be trying to get on Game of Thrones? Well, the answer is quite a few, wow. and a lot of them are tremendous specimens. Uh, and uh, the young people the specimens were doing okay a lot of the young people were like dropping to the flagstones you know I mean it was uh, it was hard work and I'll back repeatedly uh, because I think if you make it through and you' you do okay they call you back because they're using hundreds of people I got called back repeatedly and never went back
2: interesting um, so it was fun you you were. All- but you're definitely part of a historic show, so that's a, that's a great thing to have. Um, getting back to your book, um, so Mel Brooks breaks out, and I I, di- I did not know that he was the creator of, of him Buck Henry of the, um, Get Smart with Don yeah. Adams, and um and so this starts his trajectory yeah, on his own, and um and quite a successful. Um, 1960s period where um, you have Get Smart. And then he writes and produces um, a movie that would become his defining event because of the way it keeps popping up again. And that is The Producers.
3: Yeah. It provides a great third act for the book too uh, because it comes back, as you say, in his life. And it actually started about Ten years before, because Mel was a kind of a writer who needs a partner and he's a writer who doesn't like to write. So he, other people write it down um, or there's let us say in Hollywood terms, he'd be the walker and someone else would be the sitter. And so he had been struggling to write this this idea called The Producers dating from the late 1950s. And first there was going to be a novel. Then it was going to be a stage play and he was always in love with Broadway and he wanted to do, you know, some kind of stage musical. So that was a very natural evolution. But by the time of after Get Smart, he encounters a a collaborator, a friend uh, who's willing to put in a lot of hard work with him working on the script, uncredited. And I tell her story in the book. Uh, She helped him shape it into a script um, that becomes his signature script. And um, it really, you know, it's this, most people know the story. It's these two, you know, conniving, sleazy guys. One's a producer and one's his accountant who ha- developed this idea to make tons of money by having a Broadway flop. So they want to have the worst possible idea for a Broadway flop imaginable. So they have a, a musical about Hitler.
2: <laughs> Springtime <laughs> for Hitler.
3: Yeah. and this was a, This is an idea that's very... Um, and his concerns and his ideas, and uh, he loves doing Hitler, uh, uh, anti-Hitler humor. Um, So it was a success in the esteem. Um, I think it did pretty well uh, at the box office, but not enough to make much money. Uh, But it won him an Oscar for best script, um, which is a a great calling card um, and really launched his career. And critics, were very, as they always have been about Mel, um, well, as they were, let us say, when he was active, uh, they are very divided. You know, they found some of it to be tasteless and silly and not well-directed, and other parts to be amazing and, you know, memorable and, and uh, hilarious. Uh, so uh, critics paid attention, um, and they have always paid attention to him because he's very interesting to write about and his comedy and his sense of humor is very interesting to write about and particularly in the producers and then later on with Blazing Saddles and probably it ends with History of the World. Um, you know, he pushes various boundaries that today nobody would even recognize as boundaries, you know, but in those days still were boundaries.
2: Right. Boundaries
3: of taste. Boundaries of taste.
2: Um, well, he did Springtime for a Hitler alone. The song um yeah yes. and uh, Consider,
3: considered incredibly audacious at the time i think when you see the musical uh, remake which was such a tremendous success on broadway and around the world and in uh, road companies and you can see the film of it too because there's at the very end of his uh, producing career there's a film version of the musical uh it doesn't have the same edge because so much time has gone by that that humor now
2: is much more taken for granted. Sure. Now, now one thing I'm wondering what your opinion is, and there is a growing trend in Broadway to, to steal from Hollywood. You know, it used to be the the reverse. You would have a, a successful Broadway play, and then you it would be made into a theatrical film. Yeah. Um, And now we have this new, you know, this kind of new phenomenon. I'm not sure if the producers was the first or not. um, That led to them mining Hollywood for, um, you know, the streets of Broadway. And what is your feeling on that? Is that that a just something that's kind of just the nature of the business, or does it reflect a, a kind of a lack of creativity, or? Um, something about the marketplace of Broadway that it makes it, makes it difficult for new and, um, you know, artistic or worthy productions to come up.
3: Well, it's all of those things and, you know, it plays into the culture as a whole. We know that, you know, it's true in Hollywood too, you know, that now everything is the sequel of a comic book, you know, that people, people were reading in 1957. Um, And, and, Uh, It's all of those things. I mean, it's it's certainly not only not Mel Brooks's fault, (laughs) um, and I don't even think he contributed to it, really. It's the opposite in his case, that he was always in love with Broadway, uh, that he had intended originally at one point that the producers be a musical. There's a lot of great music in the original uh, film, um, uh, some of which is not in the play, but a lot of which is in the play because Mel writes music. And uh, so for him, it's a kind of natural conclusion. Uh, there was a point it, I talk about it in the book in the late '90s, where you know he had really maxed out in Hollywood. He had maxed out with the studios, with his with uh, audiences, uh, and he was he had become you know um, surprisingly uh, passe and uh, not not somebody that all the studios were trying to get to do their next, to do another movie. So you know, out of that period of really, you know, you'd say near depression, except Mel is never depressed, he's so resilient. But out of that period, out of that low period, you know, he goes back to this original really loved child, you know, um, the producers, and he starts to recraft it. And it's not recrafted that very much, meaning it is very similar to the original film. Uh, there is a lot of the same music, but a lot of songs are added, they expand it, they do things for the stage. So for him, it's a natural um, and really I kind of triumphant conclusion to his career at a point in time when he wasn't looking, you know, very strong, um, and his career as a filmmaker, as a film director, had basically ended and never resumed. And uh, I think it's that third act that makes him. And I, I I narrate this in the book. It's the third act that makes him a national treasure, uh, because it forced everybody to take another look at him Mm -hmm. and he begins to get, you know, medals from Obama and life achievement awards and all comedians start inviting them on their podcasts and their their TV shows. And he, and he, he, he becomes um, celebrated in a way that he wasn't, you know, exactly. He was always famous. He was always beloved. uh, His films were always particularly beloved by their fans uh, but he becomes celebrated, and I, as I said, kind of sainted uh, in a different way because of, of the musical of the producers. But for him, it's not—it's—it's it's a natural thing. I think he tried it again with Young Frankenstein, and did pretty well, uh, turning that into a stage musical. Uh, and uh, without Gene Wilder, who had conceived of the original who was in The Producers, by the way. Um, it was his big breakthrough. And then he was in Young Frankenstein as Young Frankenstein. But he also wrote uh, and conceived the script that Mel um, collaborated with. And, uh, and then he's been talking about still doing it with Blazing Sales, which again is a film with there's no music in Young Frankenstein or there's no songs.
2: Well, uh, it was so one song and dance thing, I think. Wasn't oh, it? yes,
3: yes. One famous song by... by uh, Putting on the Ritz, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah by Irving Berlin, right? So, uh, yeah, one song that they had to really, you know, wangle, you know, for the stage version. But um, unlike Blazing Saddles, which has several, you know, really famous songs in it, uh, again, uh, mostly written by Mel, uh, he's been talking about turning that into a stage musical. I don't know how they could do it, but, you know, um, I, I think one of the things that you're saying about Broadway is you can do it, and it doesn't matter, people will come. Right. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's, if it's not Oklahoma um, or My Fair Lady. People will come because you already have, you know, I'm talking about him being a brand. You already have that brand and that name recognition, and people who – Grew up seeing that movie and say, Oh, I'd love to see
2: the musical version. Right. And um, so it's, which is funny because his movies have music. And so then they do a musical of the, the movie. And so let's just jump into Blazing Saddles, um, which got him his second Oscar, strangely enough, best song.
3: Yeah, did he win? I have to read my book. I, he you know, did, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: I might be able to put you in touch with the author. Um, <laughs> and uh, yes, he he won. I, I, he wrote the lyrics, and he didn't write the music for. Him, but yes, he actually won an Oscar for best for song the,
3: for the theme song. Yeah. Oh yeah, and, which was um, really hilarious. And yeah, yeah, they had the great great idea of mocking it up, so it sounded like a you know typical cowboy western song.
2: And, and but it's interesting, you you have um, it's the people who are almost in it and the people who are replaced in it. So at one point, I didn't, I wasn't aware that Richard Pryor was going to be in that movie. And well, and, go ahead,
3: yeah. Well, Richard Pryor was a, a great um helper on the script, and um, I was probably wrong to call him a helper. There were like five screenwriters, and he was key uh, because they convened all the writers at one point and Mel looked around the room and said, I just see Jews. We need a black person. And, um, and then he, Richard Pryor really kicked up that, that element. And I think, look, for me, Blazing Saddles is the best Mel Brooks film, but why do I say that? Well, I I think the script is absolutely great and really brave and, um, and all of its uh, racial commentary. Um, Most, most of it, inspired by or written by uh, Richard Pryor being involved in the um, early script conferences. He did not like script writing, but everyone said he had a very powerful effect on the screenplay. And I, you know, one of the great things about Blazing Saddles is it is, it's a very chaotic, messy movie with all kinds of silly, crazy things happening. Um, And so for me, it has a lot of uh, chaotic energy of the sort that Richard Pryor and Mel Um, And the other people in the room who shouldn't be forgotten were really just, you know, uh, pitching in their best stuff. And a lot of it's in the movie. So it's, again, one of those movies where you wouldn't get all the textual references. You could study it, you know, because there's a lot of a lot of things in the background. You know, um, Mel's scenes. I think it's the movie for me where Mel comes alive as an actor um, and uh, his scenes as the governor are very, very silly and very, very funny. Um, you have Harvey Corman, you know, bursting out of television, you know, for the first time, and really Madeline Kahn, who was really just, uh, at that point in time, was like a comet, you know, attracting Oscar nominations, um, and she's splendid. Uh, and, and then, you know, the accidental casting, you know, finally, because it isn't Richard Pryor, you know, in the end, and and then Gene Wilder um, coming in also um, at the last minute
2: with a condition kind
3: of gives it kind of gives it a like less to me. Some of the later films are very canned and packaged uh, and um, laden with shtick, and 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 even though there's always an attempt to have a sort of carefree, chaotic mood, you know, to what's happening on the screen, it's not it's not very. Um, It's not very credible uh, like it is in uh, Blazing Saddles where it's happening naturally, you know, Um, and all kind of crazy things, you know, right down to, uh, you know, the the full orchestra playing in the desert at the end while the guys are riding off in their Cadillacs to their dressing rooms. (laughs) Um, It's a very, very clever script. And I treat Mel throughout the book as a writer, writing about him as a writer, his struggle to be a writer, his struggle to write you know, really to write his best, which means really to express himself. Uh, And strangely, and, you know, you'll have to read the book to to figure out, you know, the complicated reason why. Strangely, the film that has the most collaborators and the most disparate collaborators uh, turns out to be a film that expresses Mel the best for me.
2: It's interesting. We're going to take a a short break, and we'll come back. One uh, You're listening to the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay
1: tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors.
4: It passes before it's noticed. A slight rising of the eyebrows, a widening of the eyes. It may be accompanied by an almost imperceptible inhalation. The heart adds a beat like a quiet exclamation point on the experience. Within a 10th of a second, the reaction has passed, but not without leaving its mark. Someone found what they're looking for. Does your website deliver impulses to act? It can. Intended Consequences is the podcast for digital marketers who see their job as changing hearts and minds. If you're frustrated, bored, or in a rut, It's time to spread your wings with me, Brian Massey, and my guests. Find out how successful, curious, creative, and data-driven marketers are making a difference on purpose. Visit intendedpodcast.com or find us where you get your podcasts. Intended Consequences. Marketing on Purpose.
5: and have worked with fast growing brands like ShipStation and GoDaddy. Now it's your turn. Contact BRASCO at WMR.FM and rush your enterprise level podcast into production at a very reasonable rate. Email BRASCO at WMR.FM. Do you
6: look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors.
1: The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm.
2: And we're back, and we're talking with Patrick McGilligan about Funny Man, Mel Brooks and he was, was talking about why he thought Blazing Saddles was kind of the embodiment of Mel Brooks and the, his best film. Um, what What is your favorite scene from Blazing Saddles?
3: Boy, that's a tough question. I actually watch Blazing Saddles every couple of years. I figure out some reason to show it to my class. Sometimes I'll show it in like a history of American film. And you know, I. And sometimes I'll show it in another class um, um, for a different purpose. And I walk out of most of the films that I show because I've seen most of them uh, in my life 10 or 15 times. And, uh, you know, I think you get brain damage from watching a Hitchcock film that he really only intended for you to watch maybe twice, you know, watching it 10 or 15 times. But I sit in my seat and I watch and I forget that I've seen it before and I laugh. And I love the ending because I think that's what raises the film to a sort of modern uh, modernistic uh, comedy, modern comedy in a different way than other, others of Mel's works, where you discover that the whole thing has been a movie all along. And uh, they break into the movie sets in a big fist fight, and then they end up eating popcorn in the movie theater while they're watching the movie. And then the bad guy comes down the aisle, you know, after them, while they're eating popcorn, and watching the movie, it's very Godardian or Brechtian um, and hilarious. It never, it never stops to be um, uh, portentous or pretentious. And so I, I like scene after scene. But by the time you get to the ending, with Dom DeLuise as like the the puffy uh, film director and all the the guys guys doing their chorus routine. Um, um, <laughs> I'm I'm giggling, I'm chuckling. And I also watch it, you know, we started talking about this at the beginning. I'm also watching it to see what the kids are laughing at and whether the kids are getting it. And as I say, they don't really get it all, but they laugh. Right. Because the spirit of it is really, really I think it's it's a it's a big spirit. Um and it's very it's a very inclusive film comedically, so that you can find and it's it's still uh, you know, I wouldn't say you couldn't do that film a le- film like that nowadays because um, it's kind of brilliant, and maybe you could. But it's still it's still pre- pretty bold in parts.
2: Oh, definitely. I mean, um, just some of them, especially the more risque scenes. Um, you know, is that you're a hat or you're happy to see me? But um, <laughs> yeah, and it's yeah. It, it, uh, I, I wonder what the net the uh, what yeah what the reaction was. To the suits about the fart scene.
3: To the suits about the, farce scene? the fart scene.
2: The fart scene. You know that the, the.
3: Well, when, uh, supposedly when the studio first saw it at a at an executive screening, and I believe it because the fart scene is still funny. I'm not going to tell you it's my favorite scene, but it's still funny. Uh, one movie, and they saw those scenes. They came out of an executive screening of only a small number of people were at, and you know one executive. Gives Mel a list. I want that scene out where she punches the horse. I want the scene out with the farts. I want the, you know, I want the scene. I want the dialogue with the n-word changed. You know, list, list, list. And then Mel goes into the bathroom supposedly with the other executive, and the other executive is looking at him as he's like, you know, doing his business. And Mel balls up the uh, the list of complaints and throws it into the wastebasket. And the other executive says, "Good job." good filing. (laughs) And then they showed it supposedly again to the secretaries and and common people on the studio grounds, uh, in a, in a open screening and, um, everybody, you know, fell on the floor. And I believe that I believe that.
2: Well, well to second, what the, um, the producers were, the executive said to Mel Brooks, um, to you, um, good job. Your, your book is, um, being well received and again as we mentioned you'll be at the Miami Book Fair on Saturday November 23rd talking Hollywood Lives Real and Imagined and uh, so be sure the Miami Book Fair. I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us about Mel Brooks and the, the, your, your book and the other works you've done. It's been a, it's a great pleasure um, and we um, and, and continue to become the, uh, the the kind of the uh, the wisdom from Milwaukee of uh, with the insights on Hollywood so best of luck to you and thanks again for joining us
3: great thank you for having me
2: thank you and that's all we have for today this is Bennett Kelly saying have a great week um, and thank you for joining us again for another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report follow us on that video and um, best of and sweet dreams and the Hollywood memories to all of you bye bye